Hi, welcome to the Autism Grown Up Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Tara Regan. On this podcast, this is one of our many resources. This is the place where we explore and discuss topics related to adulthood and growing up, as well as share stories, strategies, and resources from people in our autism community. Hi, welcome to this week's episode of the Autism Grown Up Podcast. This week I'm sitting with Desiree Kamika, who is the director of the Autism Housing Network, which is affiliated with the Madison House Autism Foundation. Before we get into some of the really, really great aspects of this interview, I want to talk about some updates with Autism Grown Up, because we know there are a lot of things going on right now in the world that are also affecting us within the autism community. We've put together some resources, we're collecting all of the resources we're finding about supports, visual supports, various resources with coping techniques and navigating the day-to-day when it comes to the coronavirus and COVID-19 and its impact on our day-to-day life. And you can access that on our website, autismgrownup.com coronavirus. And that collection is growing on a day-to-day basis, feel free to submit some that you've seen or created for your child because information is power here and a lot of people could really benefit from those resources. We also have an ongoing conversation within the autism community that we would love for you to join and be a part of if you are not already a member. If you are, just log in. We have a Google Doc going on right now where We are specifically talking about coping with self-isolation, changes in routine, and anxiety that comes with all of that's going on right now. Autism Grown Up is entirely online, so none of our work is changed. In fact, we're doing a lot more right now to make sure that everyone stays connected and still feels like they are socially a part of something. We're starting, we're seeing a lot more conversations going on in the autism grown up community regarding COVID-19 and the coronavirus, but also come and talk with us about what you're doing and things you're loving lately, because those are key things to be thinking about too, just to support our well-being. So those are some major things I want to share that are going on right now with autism grown up. We are here to support you. Tell us if you need help with anything especially with adapting any of those social stories or visual supports you have that you've seen on our website or want something individualized for you or for your child or for a client you have or student, we're here for you. This is a challenging time right now and we are here to support your day-to-day needs as well as are still our, we're still staying true to our mission of supporting autistic individuals, families, and overall the autism community as they navigate the day-to-day. So that's my major message for this episode, for the start of this episode, because this one is one that I recorded a few weeks ago with Desiree, and it's really, really an amazing resource about housing. On the Autism Grown Up website, we do have a free resource called the Housing Checklist, which is kind of just like your intro to what housing options are out there. And we have like a brief questionnaire associated with that checklist to help identify yours or your child's needs and interests when it comes to housing in adulthood. And I found the Autism Housing Network a few weeks ago and I immediately promptly got in contact with them and thus their director, Desiree. And we had such a great conversation about housing, the types of options out there, the Autism Housing Network's programming. They have so much going on over there that you all need to immediately check out after listening to this episode. 
They have a search engine of which is essentially a network of all of the housing communities that they are aware of and working with. And they also promote a lot of advocacy and policy work to help make sure that housing stays accessible because this is a huge gap and a huge need that often just falls on families and autistic adults themselves to figure out and do by themselves. And the Autism Housing Network is a great resource and support so people don't have to do this alone. Everything that Desiree and I talk about, of course, will be in our show notes. And let's just jump into the episode. It's such a great interview. Welcome to the Autism Grown Up Podcast. Today with me, I have Desiree Kamika from the Autism Housing Network. Welcome, Desiree. Thank you for having me. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about you and your work in the autism community? Sure. um, I'm not a sibling or a parent, just a friend and an advocate of individuals on the autism spectrum. And in high school, I basically started with working at an underfunded, overpopulated, special needs, like YMCA camp. Totally had a blast. Went to college, worked for the University of Miami, Center for Autism and Related Disabilities, and then decided after talking to a lot of the teens that were part of the programs I was running, I was really excited to say, hey, you're about to graduate. What are you going to do? What's life like? And a lot of them and their families were like, we don't know. We're really concerned about what happens when, you know, the school bus stops coming. And that kind of launched my um, desire to learn more about autism and adulthood and how I can have a bigger impact. Um, It just so happened that the graduate school I was about to attend was in Washington, D.C., and they had just connected with another student who was starting a not-for-profit, which was the Madison House Autism Foundation. And so I got lucky and became an intern uh, for the Madison House Autism Foundation, and they had just gotten started to focus on autism in adulthood, mm-hmm. and they wanted me to do research on what organizations were doing what and where were the gaps. And I identified housing as a major gap. And so we started the Autism Housing Network. Wow, that's amazing. Um, I love all of those connection points that you brought up from starting in at the YMCA to the Mad- Madison House Foundation to today. It says a lot about yeah the connections you've made in the community. And can you tell me a little bit more about the Madison House Foundation and their work? Yeah, so Madison House Autism Foundation uh, was founded by the Prince family, and they have a son on the autism spectrum, Madison. He Mm -hmm. is an artist. He's a fashionista. He uses very little words to communicate, but he loves to be with people. They were very curious about what was going to happen to Madison in adulthood, and they really didn't see another non-for-profit that was focusing just on issues of adulthood. And so they started the Madison House Autism Foundation. My role has since been, after that initial internship, to develop our housing programs. So we run three housing programs out of the Madison House Autism Foundation. I lead the Autism Housing Network, which is our online platform. You can visit it at www.autismhousingnetwork.org. I also run an organization, uh, entity called the Coalition for Community Choice, and that's more of an advocacy emphasis, mm-hmm. ensuring that people have the broadest range of choices available 
uh, for residential and employment opportunity and that barriers are identified and removed in policy um, to people's preferred choices. And then the last element that of the housing programs that we run is the Empowering Communities Initiative. And that's where I speak at conferences and do podcasts like this. I do a lot of con consultations with families and individuals, as well as helping project starters across the country kind of learn from others so they don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's amazing. It sounds so comprehensive. Kind of, it builds upon each other. So when we yeah. when we created the Autism Housing Network and we started to build the database and look at the resources, we realized that there was actually a lot of policy that was getting in the way yeah. um, of innovation. And so that's when we decided we had to create the Coalition for Community Choice. Okay. And then after we did that, we realized that there wasn't any place where if there was, you know, an adult on the autism spectrum who wanted to get together with some of their friends and, you know, purchase a couple of units in like a time, townhome community, there wasn't any guidance for them. There wasn't anyone um, tying all the different innovative solutions together. And so we decided that we, we felt like we could be that glue, um, which is why we created the Empowering Communities Initiative. And now we've embarked on um, helping people do local market analysis so that people are not just educated on their options, but that we can create a survey that documents and does a paper trail of people's needs, as well as what their preferred property types are, service delivery models, what are the barriers in their community, what they would like to see more in their community. So we can, we can create more robust and neuro-inclusive communities across the country. Mm -hmm. Incredible. Um, I love that the, as you dug deeper, there were more questions that arose and more people have come forward with different needs. Like a lot of families who are listening to this podcast episode maybe at this point where they don't really know that much about housing. Um, they know that maybe their child may want to live on their own in the future, but just aren't really sure where to start. So where would you recommend? they start or in another um, uh, adult on the spectrum listening to this episode? Yeah, I think it's so important to really understand what your options are. So we created a five-part video series that talks about the benefits and considerations of over 18 different housing and service delivery models. And you can find that resource on the Autism Housing Network under the Education tab. So I would say that would be a good first place to start. Mm -hmm. um, this way you, you understand the broad range of options. And what's really important is when you're thinking about the future is you're not just looking for a program where someone fits in. Mm -hmm. You really want to be thinking more about this is an individual person with hopes, dreams, strengths, contributions, and how do we create the support system around that person? Absolutely. Right? So we're not putting people into boxes, but we're creating person-centered support systems. Mm -hmm. So yeah, starting with the individual and then working to see what is a good match. Yeah. One of my friends, um, Carlisle King, he's a self-advocate. He posted online recently. He said, the problem with putting a square peg in a round hole is not that it's just a, also a lot of work, but it destroys the peg. And 
I feel like sometimes that happens a lot to autistic people um, is that they're constantly having to bend over backwards to accommodate the neurotypical world. And there's ways in which we can create supports around neurodiverse people so that they can be beautifully neurodiverse, but also access the support they need to live the life that they want to live. I love that quote so much. I want to have to look that up as well as I'll make sure to put all of the links and areas that you mentioned on the website in our show notes so people can easily access those. But I do think that's absolutely also like the core of our messaging too that I really, really align with. And I think that's so powerful to be thinking about because so many adults, autistic adults are feeling at this point as they reach adulthood, there are so many more hurdles to face in terms of community expectations, their own expectations of the world. And there's still, and then they have mental health challenges that may arise as a result Mm -hmm. of that. I feel like if we can do anything, it's really trying to boost the confidence mm-hmm. um, of people on the spectrum and focusing on, on their strengths, knowing that certainly challenges exist. But if, you, if all you focus on is the challenge, it's really hard to bring yourself to be motivated to do things, right? When you're, yeah. when you're passionate about something, if you focus on someone's strengths and their passion or their interests, then you know the motivation comes along with that. And we should be building people's lives around what makes them happy, what yeah. brings them joy, certainly not around other societal suggestions of what is, what is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that leads to a true quality of life and having a high quality of life. Hence the need to create uh, support systems, right, around yeah. someone. And, and housing's a big part of that. Yeah. One of the biggest barriers that we have found in our work to people being able to be part of their community and access community, one is transportation. Mm-hmm. The other one is not having enough social skills to continue with relationships. So it takes a lot of work to meet someone, first of all, in a new place that might be you know, a total sensory onslaught, yeah. um, but to meet a new person to get their phone number, to have to like communicate with them, schedule something, you know, for a specific day and time, figure out how the heck you're going to get there with transportation, make sure you can afford it on your extremely limited income, and then continue that process all over again to maintain the relationship. So so we're seeing a lot of, not that people don't want to have neurodiverse relationships. I think that a lot of people just don't realize how hard that can be for Mm -hmm. some people. And I feel as if we can, if we can create more spaces where meaningful neurodiverse relationships can be developed, then we'll really start to see more opportunities in the community as well uh, for people on the autism spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a critical component to be thinking about when it comes to also considerations and options with housing. Is this something that you all have kind of built in with the process of um, across the range of your programming? I think it's just what we've begun to learn. You know, when you talk to so many people and I've seen, I've been, I've been so fortunate to have visited over a hundred residential communities all across the country and abroad. And just by, you know, asking people about their story and their history and what they would do different and what their life was like before and what would you change in your life now? These are just kind of the things that we're seeing as patterns. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when someone is looking at 
um, housing, residential, outside of the family home, it's really important to think about, will this person be able to get to the spaces where they could be with and have friends? Yeah. Um, you know, is this an environment that is enhancing well-being, right? If somebody, it might be a parent's dream, um, and they might think it's so wonderful and idyllic for their child to live on a farm, right? It's beautiful. They'll have lots of work. Um, they'll get to raise and hang out with animals all day. What a beautiful life that would be. But if someone has never spent like a week living and ranching before, um, that might not be where their true joy is. And so it's really important that, you know, we always go back to the person and we think about what gives them joy, them happiness, where are their social connections and how can we plant housing um, that core area of stability in that space. You know, I feel as if a lot of people, when you go into adulthood, it's like, what do I focus on? Do I focus on employment? Do I focus on finding the right day program? Do I focus on, you know, finding the right faith community? All of those things are really important elements of, you know, a high quality, well-rounded life. But the reality is, once you make all of those connections, if something were to happen to that person's parents or they're not able to find housing that they can afford in their area, they will be forced to move to the next empty bed in a provider-controlled setting, breaking all of those natural support systems and employment opportunities. All of the work that has been poured into this person to make them part of their community will be lost if they can't find affordable, accessible housing. Mm -hmm. Why we feel housing is so important and understanding your options between what's a provider controlled setting and what's a consumer controlled setting and what's shared living and what's a paid neighbor, knowing the differences between the service delivery models. Again, just going back to understanding your options and trying to find what works best for this particular person. Is, is always a good thing, always the best way. Absolutely, yeah. Housing at the end of the day is probably one of the most foundational things that we do take for granted because you're right, a parent or a caregiver is the one oftentimes providing that space and coordinating all of those social interactions, including employment and education and other types of things that are important for that individual's day. Right, so if they lose their housing, and they're, they have to go to a host home or a group home the next county over, who's going to help foster those connections? Right. Yes. So, so housing is a critically important element. You know, some of the things that we try to instill, I love it when I get parents call me and, you know, their child is only eight years old. I'm like, oh my gosh, you have so many years to open an ABLE account and start saving money mm -hmm. to be able to potentially purchase a home you know, in the location that you want, or to be able to have, you know, that extra cushion um, to be able to support the individual with rent payments. I cannot emphasize enough how important planning is. If an individual becomes of age, they should get on all of the wait lists, the wait list for Medicaid waivers, which is the funding stream for services, mm -hmm. the wait list at their local public housing authority to get a housing choice voucher. Even if you're not ready, to move out, you know, that year, maybe you're looking at five years out, a lot of the times wait lists are five years long. 
And so you have to be planning ahead uh, in order to be prepared and have access to the supports needed for the future. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So agreed. Planning is so key. And you do bring up a great point about um, having to think about housing maybe earlier too. Is that, I know parents start thinking about this oftentimes in teen years, but I'm always encouraging as early as possible, but also that you mentioned wait lists with Medicaid and other types of services. Um, there are huge wait lists for housing now. Right, right. Uh, so what, is, what have your experiences been in um, helping, I guess, both housing communities navigate this issue as well as do you have any insight from conversations you, you've had with families? So what we see as a trend across the country is that um, individuals on the autism spectrum and their families are looking around at their options and they're not super impressed. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they they and their expectations are a lot higher than what is available in their local area. And then they realize that a lot of other uh, people on the spectrum and families feel the same way. So they're coming together to try and figure out, well, how can we create another option? How can we create a new solution here in our community so that people in our community don't have to be displaced? So what I'm seeing is a lot of family groups just coming together and whether that is because they know each other from being part of their faith community or maybe part of the same support group, they're coming together to explore options and then working together to try and help increase the housing stock in their community. And so whether that's pooling resources to purchase a home, um, whether that's working with a local developer to be able to um, make sure that there are units available for people on the autism spectrum um, in a future development that's already being planned. There's lots of different ways that communities are deciding to come together to create local solutions. And that is certainly something that we like to highlight on the Autism Housing Network and something that we do a lot of consulting through the Empowering Communities Initiative with is just helping people know what's the next step to develop local solutions to help mitigate the national housing and support crisis. Right. Um, yeah, because that is going to become an increasingly more alarming issue, I think, for a lot of families as they realize, oh, these wait lists are really long. But yeah, I've been hearing more stories, too, about families coming together and building a community together, which I think even reinforces even more of the support network idea that's absolutely needed for success in adulthood. And it could be in the shape of neurodiverse co-housing mm -hmm. or a planned community, but it could also be um, just deciding to purchase homes or rent homes that are within walking distance of each other, right? And creating that support system, those relationships um, as the as the safety net, as the connection. So it doesn't have to be, you know, you have to build a new apartment building. It could be using whatever is available in the local housing stock and then creating those networks of relationships to support one another. You know, another thing that we haven't talked about on this podcast is accessory dwelling units or tiny homes. Mm -hmm. I was a host home provider in, to a young man on the autism spectrum and he came with me to the tiny home festival in Colorado. And his dream is to save money uh, in his ABLE account to buy his own tiny home. 
and I wrote a blog post with him. You can find it on the Autism Housing Network on all the reasons why he thought a tiny home would be awesome. Uh, and the first was it's easy to clean. Everything gets <laughs> swept out the front door. Um, but it's also portable. He could move it to where he might want to live in the future. And it's affordable, right? It's something that he could potentially purchase in the future if he saves up enough money. And so he didn't have a family network, but for individuals who are maybe living with their family, if um, a family is able to add a mother-in-law suite or an accessory dwelling unit or a tiny home to their property, then in the, in the far future, uh, their loved one could potentially live in that tiny home or ADU, and then the family unit could stay in the larger home, but they still have privacy. They can still have their own life, their own walking in and out of their own front door. And then in the future, when their parents no longer live in that home, they can choose to move to the home with maybe some of their friends and then rent out the ADU to a college student mm. or, you know, a single adult who wants to help maybe with transportation or go grocery shopping once a week and vice versa. Maybe they like the accessory dwelling unit. And so they rent the main house out to a host family who provides support to them as needed. And then this way, it's not just like a built-in support network, but it's also an income stream. You know, people pay rent to the person with autism and maybe the trust that the house is saved in. And so it's a little bit of a, a funding stream to keep up with maintenance costs, uh, property taxes, and maybe some extra spending money if needed. Too. Essentially, it's a self-contained small home. Exactly. Yeah, that could be on your parents' lot or a different lot altogether. That's something we were thinking about for my family, for my brothers in the future sometime. Get more resources on that. The yeah. best, the person who I go to and look for for leadership is based in Massachusetts. Okay. Um, and her name is Catherine Boyle, and she runs Autism Housing Pathways. And they have really done some amazing things in Massachusetts to help um, families access uh, financing for accessory dwelling units. Mm -hmm. um, she has some exciting legislation uh, trying to be introduced to make it easier for people to um, have zoning codes uh, just so they don't have to spend a lot of extra money convincing the town that this is needed, but also uh, financing options to help families afford and finance the accessory dwelling units. So Autism Housing Pathways, shout out to Autism Housing Pathways in Massachusetts. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, speaking of resources, this leads well perfectly to my next question. Um, what are some common resources or tools you've turned to or recommend that others use? Well, obviously the Autism Housing Network. We've Yikes. tried to make it really easy and bring together the best ideas in housing for people with ADD in one space. I find that a lot of support comes from online uh, social media groups. So a lot of parents use Facebook to be able to connect and talking to other parents is helpful mm -hmm. because they're able to share kind of like the tips and tricks of navigating the system in their specific local area. And so I find that to be a really good source of support and navigation. Mm -hmm. And then for self-advocates, definitely looking at if there's meetup groups that happens. GRASP is a great organization for self-advocates to connect at the local level. 
And so trying to find a little support network where you don't have to wear the neurotypical mask and you can share with others about what are the challenges you're facing and how others have overcome those challenges. Mm -hmm. um, so for self-advocates who are interested in connecting with others, I think that, you know, looking at meetup is a really great way to find um, kind of like monthly groups. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, definitely. Love that one. You know, the other thing that I think is essential is developing one's natural support system. So this isn't necessarily like a disability specific resource, but if you can find an activity that happens every week where you don't have to do any extra planning, it just happens every week and the same people go every week, mm -hmm. you start to develop relationships. That's a great way to begin building your natural support network. So faith communities, a church, a synagogue, a mosque, those are, you know, classic examples of something where there's a gathering once a week where you can go and someone's going to be there and over time they'll recognize you. Um, I happen to be a line dancer, so my system is my line dancing crew. <laughs> and if I don't show up for line dancing, um, you know, two weeks in a row, someone is calling me, Desiree, are you okay? What's going on? How come we haven't seen you? And that's what you want in the future as well. You want people to know who you are, who aren't paid to support you, but that can, you know, kind of look out for you just in case something were to happen. Yeah. Um, so finding one's natural support system is, is really important and just activities that happen every week. Um, bingo is another one. Um, sports teams, uh, things like that, I think are, are critical. Right. Yeah. And to find those, you could also use meetup talk. Yep. Um, totally. Those are, yeah, I have a couple guys that use that frequently across a variety of sports. I'm like, there is no way I could play pickleball or <laughs> volleyball, but they love it. And they have like such a great crew that they return to on a weekly basis that they also like to check on too. Right, exactly. Um, more of those reciprocal relationships that make a world of a difference in a support network. Um, yeah, so we're going to start shifting towards the last couple of questions. I always like to ask these for everyone. Uh, what are you excited about and looking forward to in the coming months? Ooh, so hopefully in late spring, uh, a report will be released called A Place in the World. I, am, I have a partnership with First Place Arizona and Arizona State University, um, Morrison Institute for Public Policy, and we are working on a, on a, almost like a guide for understanding the different residential options. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like our system and society really are evolving, right? There's no longer just group homes and in-home supports or ICFs. Like we're starting to see much more of a variety mm -hmm. of what home and community could look like. And yes. there isn't really any materials that kind of speak the same language and explain a variety of options. And so we are working uh, together to be able to put together kind of a new and improved um, guide so people can really understand a lot of variety of property types, service delivery models, built-in amenities, um, things like that. So I'm really excited for that to be published, uh, hopefully in late spring. So keep okay. an eye out, follow us on Facebook and um, join our newsletter for to be notified of the publication of A Place in the World study. 
Yeah, I look forward to that coming out too. I'll have to keep my eyes peeled for it. That's exciting. Um, so critical because, I mean, we just talked about a few of the options, but people can really get creative in terms of these types of things. And then uh, you mentioned a little bit of this, but uh, how can people listening to this episode get in touch with you or the Autism Housing Network? Yeah, so we um, feel free to visit our website. We have contact forms. Um, you can make comments. You could also fill out a request for a consultation. Um, all of those links are on our website. The Madison House Autism Foundation has its own website because they do not focus just on housing. We are just one project of the Madison House Autism Foundation. Mm -hmm. And so you can go to madisonhouseautism.org. Uh, one of the exciting things that they do is they, we launched a initiative called Autism After 21 Day. So April 21st, we try to help local communities get that day designated as Autism After 21 Day in their communities. It has already been established as a national day that April 21st is Autism After 21 Day, but we'd like to get that in all communities around the country. And what that does is it just kind of raise awareness of you know individuals on the autism spectrum, they face different challenges when they're no longer in school and they have a lot to offer our communities, but they need support in order to make sure they can be participants and part of community life. So it's, it's one initiative that we hope to spread all across the country, um, and that you can find more information on the autism, madisonhouseautism.org. Okay, great. Thank you so much again for being on the podcast today, Desiree. It was so great having you. Thank you, Tara, for doing the Autism Grown Up podcast. It's so important to share good resources and information. And by all means, if you ever find resources that you think are worth sharing on the Autism Housing Network, um, it is meant to be an interactive platform. So anybody can add resources to our resource directory. We can add housing listings. Um, if there's an emerging project happening, we, we want to be interactive and we want to continue um, to promote your work as well and the work that you're doing through Autism Grown Up. So thank you. All right. Thank you all so much for listening to today's episode. I hope it gave you what you needed. If, if it was a break from thinking about what's going on out there in the world today, or it gave you a great start and in interest in looking more in housing resources or a resource to pass along to somebody else, then that's fantastic. And also thank you again to Desiree Kamika for talking with me about the Autism Housing Network and her amazing work there. I look forward to following up on their report and I will be happy to share that with you all once that comes out. And also this episode is linked up as a post in our Autism Grown Up community. So I will talk with you all there about any takeaways, any questions you have, and I will also chat with you all next week.